The opinions expressed on this podcast are solely those of the hosts. Hi, this is Maz and Juan. I'm Maz. And I'm Juan. And this week we're joining you from the Left Forum Conference here in Midtown Manhattan with a very special guest, Mr. Chris Hedges, who's the author of a new book, Wages of Rebellion. Thank you, sir, for joining us. This Not afternoon. at all. Um, so can you tell us why you decided to write that book um, Well, because the three previous books, Death of the Liberal Class, Empire of Illusion, The End of Literacy, and The Triumph of Spectacle, and Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which I wrote with the cartoonist Joe Sacco, were a look at the disintegration of the system, the disintegration of the liberal mechanisms that made incremental and piecemeal reform possible, uh, this, the rise of the society of spectacle, uh, which you know totalitarian systems do spectacle and image very well, uh-huh. and of course make war on thought, which means war on print. And then Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, which was written out of the poorest pockets of the United States, uh, the sacrifice zones, including Camden, New Jersey, which per capita is the poorest city in the United States, and said, look, in an age of unfettered, unregulated capitalism, we're all one big sacrifice zone, especially the ecosystem, and you better understand what this machine is about or it'll kill you. And so this book is different. I'm not trying to offer a critique of the system. I'm talking about the mechanisms of revolt. Mm-hmm. how revolt works, the kinds of people who do revolt, what revolt takes, what they do to you. If you are a serious rebel, a lot of these interviews are in prison. Mumia Abu-Jamal, uh-huh. um, Jeremy Hammond, um, uh, Lynn Stewart, the yeah. civil rights attorney, just as she gets out of prison, Julian Assange. There's a lot of interviews with people who are, have been captured by the state. Um, because the state fears them. Um, so that, that's what I wanted to, to, to begin to explain the triggers and to explain what it takes and what we have to do. In the United States today, in your lecture you gave earlier at the Left Forum as well too, you discussed the possibility, you alluded to the possibility of revolution, discussing revolt in the United States today. If you were to see that, which pockets of society would you predict that coming from and what do you think it would entail? Well, I quote the revolutionary theorists at the beginning of the book, uh, Crane, Brinton, and Davies, who, like Trotsky and others, Bakunin, argue correctly, in my view, that you can't carry out a revolt unless you fuse uh, together the dispossessed with what Bakunin calls de classe intellectuals, by that, he means people who have come out of higher education, lawyers, uh, journalists. Uh, artists. Artists would be perfect. I mean, people, but, but people who the, the society has not offered them a place, and so they're living by force on the margins of society. And these day class say intellectuals, I think they're vital, and I think when you look at every revolution, they're fundamental because uh, they... Uh, have the ability to articulate ideas or express ideas, or in the case of artists, make ideas felt that become vital to building a movement. Um, They also, in many ways, speak the language of power. They're often, especially if they're white, the sons and daughters of the middle class. They have gone to institutions of relative privilege. And I think every revolution, including the Salvadoran Civil War, which I covered for five years, 
draws pretty heavily on that group. And that's what the Occupy group was. They were the sons and daughters, white largely sons and daughters of the middle class, who uh, left uh, the university with tremendous debt and found there was no place for them in the society. Uh, they, they were, you know, crippled by debt peonage. Um, and they turned on the society. Now, you know, if the society embraced them the way, you know, offered them economic opportunity, which happened after the 1960s with the new left, uh, you know, that movement may have been rather muted or not had any kind of role in terms of dissent. But what it did is fuse that class with the underclass, people of color who live in marginal communities who have been suffering the effects of police brutality, unemployment, you know, bank repossessions and uh, mortgage foreclosures and all, for, for years. Yes. Now, it also triggered a justifiable distaste on the part of poor people of color who looked at these white kids and said, uh, welcome to our world. And where were you when the neoliberal state was destroying us? You were, yeah, now you're getting a taste of what we've been tasting. Right, you're getting a taste of what we endured. Yeah. And of course, the white liberal elite was busying itself with multiculturalism and identity politics, which is really anti-politics. I mean, electing a person president because he's black or because they're women has nothing to do with politics. No. Uh, you mentioned identity politics, and Maz and I have talked a lot about this because of our own critiques about it. Um, what are your critiques of identity politics? Well, it's not politics. I mean, you can't, it, you know, there's, it, 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 because it de it's devoid of content. Mm -hmm. you, you, you have powerful propaganda or public relations mechanisms that create manufactured personalities. That's what Obama is. That's what any major celebrity or leader is. It's a manufactured personality, and you vote based on how you feel towards that manufactured personality. That has nothing to do with politics. Sure. Um, do you believe that the liberal order has failed us? Do you think it's functional now? Is it's it not functional. I mean, I wrote Death of Liberal Class, yeah. which is a long book about why it's not functional. It does, it, you know, you can't carry out reform through the system. The liberal order has been replaced by a kind of faux neoliberal liberalism, if I can use that phrase, you know, embodied by figures like Clinton or Obama, which speak in the traditional feel-your-pain language of liberalism, but assiduously serve corporate power. So it's under Clinton that you get NAFTA, uh -huh. uh, the greatest betrayal of the working class since the 1948 Taft-Harley Act. It's under Clinton that you get the 1994 cr omnibus crime bill, which explodes the prison population to two million by the time Clinton leaves office. It's under Clinton that you get the deregulation of the FCC. So primarily the electronic airwaves are uh, captured and controlled by about a half dozen corporations, General Electric, you know, which also does defense contracting, Rupert Murdoch News Corp. It's under Clinton that you get the destruction of welfare and originally, under that system, 70% of the recipients were children. Mm -hmm. And it's under Clinton that you destroy Glass-Steagall, which put firewalls between commercial and investment banks and uh, prevented the banking crisis that happened in 2008. So, and Obama has carried on that tradition. Obama's assault on civil liberties has been worse. Worse than George Bush. Yes, worse yes. than Bush. He's expanded imperial war. He has use the 2001 authorization to use Military Force Act as uh, ostensibly giving him the power to order the assassination of American citizens. Now he's pushing TPP as well. TPP and CAFTA. So Obama is kind of cut from that mold. Um, I mean, the Democratic Party in Europe would be a far-right party. Yeah. Right. 
we're at the precipice of this 18-month spectacle of the presidential elections now. Right. And you alluded that basically that much of it embodies a form of anti-politics. Yeah. What do you counsel? Do you pay attention to the election? Is it worthwhile paying attention to? Is there a meaningful difference between the two parties on hand at all? Well, there are differences, but it's what Freud would call the narcissism of minor difference. I mean, differences on social, like abortion or gay rights, and I'm obviously pro-choice and pro-gay rights, Yes. but the structural mechanisms of the corporate state remain untouched. Nobody goes after Wall Street. Imperial wars continue to expand. Uh, the state is unresponsive, so you have every 28 hours, usually a poor person of color is murdered. Un- you almost always they're unarmed by militarized police. I mean, we have up this insane phenomena where we have videos of citizens being murdered by police, and the police are not charged with murder. Mm. Um, so the longer the state refuses to respond to these and innumerable other conditions, the more it uh, fosters the possibility of violent blowback. So we've had police officers shot in it's New York. Yes, my, been shot. Mississippi. Yeah. Two were shot. Was it yesterday? Or the day before? Yeah. And I, you know, I'm hoping that that's episodic and isolated. Um, but it may not be. I mean, the, fa- the longer the state ignores the, the, the creed de cour of the underclass, you know, how many times are you supposed to walk through the streets in nonviolent protest and then another person gets shot through the back? And then you walk through another, because the state does nothing yes. structurally to respond, except ridiculous things like we're going to, you know, put body cams on. Well, I work in liberal ornaments of reform. Liberal ornaments. I put, I work in a prison and I know how body cams work. So the often when they go in to beat the crap out of a prisoner, they go in, in a huddle, in a group, and the guy with the body cam is in the back and you can't see anything except the backs of the other officers. And you may even hear the prisoner saying, I'm not resisting, but you can't see anything. I mean, the hell out of them. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we just had a case in New Jersey where they beat up a 28-year-old guy and killed him and then turned his badly beaten body over to his family and told the family he died of a heart attack. And the family, I saw the pictures of the body, and the family said, we want an autopsy. And they said, well, if you want an autopsy, it costs you $4,000. And they're a poor family from Trenton. They don't have $4,000, and which the state knows. And they, he was buried. I mean, he was murdered. Um, that, that's just one isolated case that I know about. There, This is writ large across the whole system. So the callousness of the state, the brutality of the state, the, the willingness of the state to use lethal force against unarmed citizens, and the inability of the state to reform itself, plus the fact that the state is tone deaf. You have people crying out for jobs, crying out for relief from debt peonage, uh, and the state, you know, all it does is impose new programs of austerity. That is dangerous. It's dangerous. And the longer the state does that, the more it, it pushes us towards, uh, you know, more potentially violent confrontations. You say the state is tone deaf? And yeah. So I, spent, I was in Baltimore for a while, and right. I walked around Sandtown, Winchester, and you can just see the poverty and the, right. the dilapidated housing and whatnot. And to me, it seems just so simple. It's like... This isn't that complicated, what you have to do to solve the situations of the people who live in communities like Sandtown and Winchester. But they are tone deaf, and you talk to politicians and policymakers, and they just don't seem to get it. 
Why not? Well, because they're, well, because because they're, they're anti-black and they're elitist and classes, or there's something well, else. Well, there's many reasons to be anti-black. I yeah. mean, you know, you can be just a black careerist. I mean, the black upper middle class in particular has been quite willing to sell out the black underclass for their own personal gain. Yeah, it's like so, capitalism with a black face. Well, yeah, or as Cornell Wells says, a black, Obama's a black mascot for Wall Street. Yeah, um, so that too, well, yeah. that's how colonialism works. Yeah. You push out a black face or a face of color of the subject population, you know, the population that you're ruling, and then they rule, you know, they, they are personally enriched in the way Clinton... You know, the Clintons are worth tens of millions of dollars. Michelle and Barack Obama will, within a year or two of leaving office, be worth tens of millions of dollars. Uh, it's a really dirty, dirty game. Uh, but it's a species of colonialism. That is that is the mechanism of colonialism. And, uh, uh, I mean, you have some people that are just clueless. They just, you know, they're so rich and they're white and they're privileged and they're isolated. They believe their own lies, their own myths. You have people that are cynical, you have people that are just careerists, you have people that are racist. I mean, it's just a mixture of belief systems things, yeah. that come together to subjugate the poor. Yeah. We were looking for your book. You couldn't find it. Oh, great. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you wrote a book a few years ago critiquing Sam Harris and yeah. Yeah, Hitchens, a few yeah, right, personal right. bit noirs as well, too. Okay. And you alluded to earlier that... Uh, you know, there's been this war on the written word and yeah. exaltation of image, which is, you know, very endemic to totalitarian society. Right. Sam Harris and Hitchens, they, they're people who broke through that to some degree. They had bestseller books, but their books, the content of it, in a way, was perverse. Yeah. And, uh, you know... Well, because they were illiterate. I mean, both of them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, illiterate in the sense of uh, not Hitchens. It's not illiterate, but he's illiterate about religion. Right. Yeah. He doesn't know. It'd be like me writing a book about biology after reading Peterson's Field Guide to Birds or something. I mean, and he could when I debated him, he could only debate his caricature of me. He could oh, debate, debate Hitchens. Yeah, yeah I debated yeah. both of them. Oh, and you couldn't both of them. I mean, Harris is just stupid. Hitchens is, wasn't stupid. He was just amoral. Um, but they debate, they were both wading into, uh, uh, you know, an intellectual field they knew zero about. Great hubris, too. Well, yeah, but the stupider you are, the more arrogant you are. I mean, and, and they, they, it was, it was inane. And I've debated Christian fundamentalists, and it was like debating a fundamentalist. Um, it was exactly the same, where... Uh, they can't, I mean, if I debate a fundamentalist, I'm just a secular, godless humanist who, you know, wants to destroy Christian America. Well, it was the same debating Hitchens and Harris. Yes. I supported magic. Well, I don't support magic. You know, I mean, it, it's it, it's just cartoonish. Yeah. Um, and, and, of course, it's a form of racism where, at, like the Christian right, so instead of, like, bombing Muslims in the Middle East... Uh, because they're satanic, you bomb them because they're barbaric. So it's a celebration of, of you know, white supremacy, Western, quote-unquote, culture. Western imperialism. Yeah, and it's a form of fundamentalism. Fundamentalism can come in secular form. Uh, so before we let you go, because we know you're busy, um, so what are you hoping to, hoping to see in the next decade or so? From all this, decades. We don't. Ha we don't have decades. I mean, the ecosystem is unraveling at a rate that even climate scientists didn't predict. I mean, they just found out that the summer, that the sea ice is not old ice; it's all new ice, which completely changes the way you measure ice. Really? Yeah. 
I mean, March, we had every single day in March was over 400 parts per million for the first time since recorded weather patterns. <coughs> we have any time. They're killing the planet as fast as they can, and we're sitting here like sheep being shorn. And um, my fear is that by the time we rise up, it'll be too late. We don't have any time left. We gotta, we gotta move. Given the urgency, what would you recommend to someone listening to this, young people, anyone else listening to this today? We gotta get out in the street. We gotta build sustained acts of mass civil disobedience in the same way they did it in the revolutions in Eastern Europe, which I covered. We gotta shut down the streets. We gotta shut down the squares. We gotta shut down the public transportation. I'm, I come out of nonviolence. I, I think, you know, I'm not a pacifist. I was in Bosnia during the war, so, uh, but violence won't work. Violence is kind of what the state wants. I mean, they're hoping, you know, kind of perverse way that if a bunch of cops get killed, then they that gives them a license to just shoot everybody. You saw it with the, with uh, the after um, all the marches of Black Lives Matter and Ferguson and that New York City cop. They, in a kind of sick way, the state couldn't have been happier. Um, and we got to avoid that. We got to be disciplined, um, because our goal is not to feel good. It's not about you know our spontaneous desire to tell the pigs to fuck off. Our goal is to destroy these people, which means we have to be disciplined and smart, and we have to use the tools that we have, which is our numbers, the truth that we tell, and the fact that we're willing to throw our bodies in front of the machine. But that's what we got to do. Um, and it will require a, a rise of political consciousness. I just was with some Ferguson activists, really impressive. T. Dubbo, a hip-hop artist. Oh, was, yeah, yeah. He's very yeah. cool. And, I mean, he got it. I mean, inv Obama invites him to the White House, and Obama asks him if he voted for him. And he said, I didn't vote for you. You haven't done anything for black people. <laughs> and he says, to vote for you because you're black is shallow. Well, look, that guy out of Ferguson has a political sophistication that eluded the entire liberal class of most of the country. Yeah. Um, and one that I've been pounding on for a long time, even back in 2008, because I was Nader, I, wrote, I worked with Ralph Nader and wrote his policy speeches for him. And in 2008, when you got up and tried to counter this tidal wave of, you know, yes, we can. Uh, you were booed out of places like Berkeley and everywhere else. But it comes from, I don't really care. I care about, I mean, I prefer to have a person of color, obviously, because they have a sensitivity that somebody raised in privilege doesn't have. And not only that, they see things that white people raised, especially white males raised in privileges, don't see. Um, but at the same time, I'm not going to vote for somebody because they're a woman or because this is just insane. Yeah, it's a good sense. Well, there you go. If you can elect Condoleezza Rice, you know. <laughs> uh, it matters what people stand for and what they fight for and what they care for. And um, and I think that that I don't I don't think Hillary Clinton is going to resonate particularly, especially with kids of color, poor kids of color, the way, you know, Obama, they were able to use Obama. Um, I think there is a rising political sophistication uh, embodied in these groups, including in the remnants of the Occupy group, which is kind of fragmented, but is still involved in the drive to raise the wage by, to $15 an hour. The Debt Jubilee has been involved with Black Lives Matter. These are all really hopeful yeah. signs. Great. Well, thank you very much yeah. for joining us. We really yeah. appreciate it. Yeah.